Jericho Road is a podcast and a Sunday school class and a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Birmingham, Alabama. These days, we're looking at the whole Bible through the lens of living water, and we hope you'll join us. Well, hey, everybody, welcome back to a podcast that we've been calling Living Water, where we're looking at Bible stories, we're trying to meet old friends in a new way through the lens of water or the lack of it. Just about every story in the Bible has got a water hook, and this one is no exception. So these days we're looking at early Christian communities or stories that I'm going to call Easter people. And in our last episode, we looked at a community that Paul started in the Greek city of Corinth in the Eastern Mediterranean. Corinth, you've got two books in the backs of your Bibles called First and Second Corinthians, although he probably wrote them more letters And in Corinth, we saw a problem, we saw a solution, and then we saw a new ethic of love that we can um, apply today. I mean, we can see in the lives of the Corinthians something that we can do in the 21st century ourselves. So that's that episode. Today, we're going to go back a couple of chapters and actually to the east on a map in northern Greece as we simply recall this loop that Paul took in the year 51. We're going to go back in the months before he arrived in Corinth to the city of Philippi. Now, Philippi would be Paul's first European excursion, and in this city, in a region that the Romans would call Macedonia, and Philippi is very near a new uh, country called New Macedonia, actually, uh, he establishes a community based on the gospel, just like he did in Corinth, the gospel. And I want to remind you that the word gospel is something that gets thrown around a lot. We may say that well, one church preaches the gospel as opposed to not preaching the gospel, or we even might have the gospel in our church's name, right? Full gospel fellowship, that sort of thing. Gospel to the point that we might not know what it means. Yes, we know that it means good news, uh, but Paul meant something more specific than that. For Paul, the gospel would mean three things, and you can't you can't have less than three, and you can't have more than three. But the three things are grace, we're saved by grace, not anything that we could do on our own, right? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, got it. And then time simply means that God so loved the world, he entered his own creation in time to uh, redeem time for us, if you will, to, to show us that the kingdom of God is under our noses, that the world's got a lot of wrong in it, but it's got heaven in it too. And we can see these signs in time as we wait uh, to go home with Jesus. And then three, if we know these things, if we know that we're saved by grace and we know that God is near then we'll be a family. So that's the gospel. And he establishes these communities of people. They don't even know what to call themselves uh, before they become called Christians. They just know that they're different in the way that the Bible asks them to be different. They call it the way. Uh, And so he starts one in Philippi before he gets to Corinth. But Philippi is going to be a very different experience than Corinth because Philippi is a very different town uh, than Corinth, quite frankly. Just by contrast, I could say this. Corinth was very cosmopolitan. Philippi is not. Uh, Corinth would be very progressive. Uh, Philippi is not. Corinth would be very diverse. (laughs) Philippi is not. Uh, Some of this is due to geography. Corinth is on water, and and Philippi is removed from water. It's very much inland, but also it has to do with history. 42 BC, there was a famous battle called the Battle of Philippi, or Philippi. Uh, Mark Anthony and Octavian, who uh, ran something. They were the two members of something called the Triumvirate. They had a third leader, Lepidus, with them. But Mark Anthony and Octavian went to battle against the murderers of Julius Caesar, Brutus, and Cassius. And they had a battle there on the plains of Philippi uh, with 200,000 men. It was one of the larger of the Roman civil wars. 
and it was the end of the Republic, functionally. They still called themselves Republic, but really, you could say that in Philippi, the Republic died and the Empire was born. Uh, shortly after that, Augustus would rise to be the sole uh, ruler of their world. But as a result, uh, for Augustus to give men on both sides of this battle, uh, uh, what he would do to give them uh, peace, if you will, to keep them from rising up again, he would simply grant them pensioners. He would give them land uh, so that they would keep the peace, so that they could uh, settle there and and be productive citizens as opposed to restive soldiers uh, that might give him trouble again, if all that makes sense. In other words, <laughs> Philippi is a big old military town. It, it's, it's a big old military town, and it's very uh, patriotic, and it's more provincial uh, than Corinth. So Corinth is diverse because it's a port city. Think New Orleans here with lots of cultures and languages and races and religions and lots of people coming and going. Uh, Philippi is pretty much just Rome all the time. And the more removed you are from Rome, but if you want to keep your Roman identity, the more the more uber-Roman you tend to be. I want to remind you, and if you've been to any kind of Roman place, you're going to know this immediately. Romans didn't like change, and they like uniformity. So if you've been to Roman Britain, or you've been to Rome in North Africa, if you've been to Rome, certainly, if you've been to uh, Roman Roman places in the Middle East, anywhere in the Roman world, they're pretty much the same. It's the same central market, the same cardo, what they call the main street, the same amphitheaters. I mean, all these things are um, all the same because the Romans like for them to be the same. And in Philippi, not only are they the same, they're really the same. And so they're very anti-Roman ideas at all. I think if we were to put a a modern comparison between Corinth and Philippi, I would say that Corinth would be very much a blue city and Philippi the reddest of red state cities, if you would. I mean, let's compare, you know, a a military base uh, versus New York City. It's just that's how you can get your mind around it. So Paul would start churches in both of these places. He would start a church in Philippi. He'd start a church in Corinth. And um, I would say that the experience would be very different in both of these places. Uh, Christians would, would, would buy trouble in Philippi. Uh, this would cause all kinds of hardship to, to claim this gospel uh, because, well, they were different in a town where people didn't want you to be different. They were different in a place where they didn't want you to be anti-Roman. They were, they, were, they were different in a place that didn't have diversity. And then adding to this would be the language that they used with each other. Paul would write them, and this is, this is his salutation in the letter, right? All letters have a salutation. So we might say, dear John, uh, Paul would write this, uh, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that sounds like something I might say in church on a Sunday morning, and in fact, I do. Uh, but remember, these people are uber-Roman, and peace is a gift from the emperor, Pax. Romana is what the emperor gives, and then why are they calling Jesus Christ Lord? So immediately their citizenship is suspect. And then add to that, if they don't show up for the sacrifice to the emperor cult, uh, then suddenly they're wondering if they're really even Roman. Now, we see all this in the book of Acts, and I want to remind you, when you look at the backs of your Bibles, the book of Acts is about Paul and his journeys and other things, too, but it's about Paul, and then the letters are by Paul. And there's an interesting contrast in Acts in in that Paul is on trial in both of these places. He is on trial before Roman authorities in Philippi. He's on trial before Roman authorities in Corinth, and they're very different. In Acts chapter 18, Paul is brought before a very bored proconsul Gallio who dismisses any charges against Paul for perverting the religion of the Hebrews. Uh, they try to pin something on him, and he just I could just see him yawning uh, at, from, the, from the bema, from the stand where Paul 
is facing him, and he says, Paul, this is a Jewish problem, not a Roman problem. Don't care. Not so in Philippi. Back in Acts chapter 16, when Paul arrives in Europe for the first time, Paul doesn't even do much of anything. He's just arrived in town, and just by chance, he heals a slave girl with a spirit of divination. It turns out she's following Paul and Silas and just hollering at him and calling them son of the most— prophet of the most high God and this kind of thing. And so, and so she, she's calling out, said, these men are slaves of the most high God who proclaimed to you a way of salvation. He's kept doing this for many days. And then I'm reading now, this is in, in Acts chapter 16, but Paul very much annoyed turned and said to the spirit, I order you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very minute. Um, Paul's not Jesus. I mean, he's he's human and he's in a bad mood. And this is the sad part about this little miracle is it almost seems like it's a, a matter of course. It's not this you know, in the name of love, I release you of your of your burden, young lady. It's more like, leave us alone, right? Well, what happens when the slave girl's owners have lost their means of income? Uh, it is it's hardly it, it's hardly it's hardly sedition, uh, but they they do they are angry. They're angry that now that this, she's out of a job, so they're out of a source of money. So they trump up some charges and they haul Paul before a Roman court. Now, remember what I said about Corinth. Uh, Gallio is bored, does not care. Uh, see, you, you Hebrews, see to it amongst yourselves, whether Christians are Hebrew or not, or whether Paul is, is upsetting your apple cart. Uh, but in Philippi, to be different is dangerous. So they haul Paul before the magistrate, and this is what happens. This is Acts chapter 16, verse 19. And remember, all he did was turn around and go, get out of here, lady, and be healed. Okay. But when their owners saw that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. Dragged them in, okay? And when they brought them before the magistrate, they said, these men are disturbing our city. They are Jews and advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to adopt or observe. Then the crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates had them stripped of their clothing and ordered them to be beaten with rods. And after they gave them a severe flogging, they threw them into prison and ordered the jailer to keep them securely. And following these instructions, he put them in the innermost cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. Okay, yikes. I mean, think about think about um, how serious these charges are. And remember what they called them. They're Jews. They're not Romans. They're, they're not even enough Jewish people there for there to be a, a synagogue. They're simply people go by the river in a place of prayer that I'll show you in just a minute. But rather, think about how, how awful they are uh, to someone who's just simply... Uh, other. So we also need to remember that Acts is not only a story about Paul in this place, Philippi, but there's also a curious detail about Acts chapter 16. Acts is a sequel to Luke's gospel. So that's something that a lot of people don't know. You've got Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then you've got John in the middle, and then Acts. And it's a shame that John is stuck there because, because Acts is really the continuation of the story. So Acts is a sequel to, to, to Luke's gospel, and for most part, Acts is written from the third-person point of view, grammatically speaking, meaning they sailed to Cyprus, they traveled to Jerusalem, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But when you get to Acts chapter 16 and the story of Philippi, the story of this dangerous, hot little uh, military town, uh, the writing changes to first person. It changes to we. In other words, if Luke wrote Luke and Luke wrote Acts, we think that Luke was there. In other words, he goes from they went to the region of Phrygia and Galatia, 
to reset sail from Troas and took a straight course through Samothrace. In other words, Luke was with Paul in Philippi, and it looks like Luke stayed because because when you go back to Acts chapter 17, uh, then he goes back into the third person point of view again. It looks like Luke could have stayed in this hot, tight little town where you could get thrown into jail uh, in an eyelash, right? And he wrote the gospel. It's very possible that Luke's remembrance of Jesus happened in this remarkable place. I've got my own story with Philippi. I, I love it. In 2018, I got a chance to travel there, but I got to tell you, Philippi is a long way from nowhere. I led a group uh, over there to try to find Paul. I play a game that I like to call a get, where you can have your Bibles open and you can see something or touch something that happened in Scripture. And I, Paul is hard to find. I mean, that guy, it took us trains, planes, and automobiles to get just about everywhere. And Paul did it, you know, largely by foot or foot or by boat. Uh, I led a group from Thessaloniki in a coach. It was three and a half hours by coach north, one way to the border of Greece in this country of New Macedonia. And it just took it just took forever. I mean, it really beat us up to even get there, which is to say that Paul really, really got around. And here in Acts chapter 16, beginning with the 11th verse, we read of the first European conversion to the gospel. I want to read this to you. This is this is verse 11 in chapter 16. We set sail from Troas, which is in Asia, by the way, and took a straight course to Samothrace, following that day to Neapolis, which today is a Greek city called Kavala, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city for some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside to the gate by the river where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the woman who'd gathered there. A certain woman named Lydia, a worshiper of God, was listening to us. She was from the city of Thyatira and a dealer in purple cloth, which means that she was a high-end retailer. Purple cloth was only sold to the very wealthy. The Lord opened her heart to listen eagerly to what was said by Paul. Then she and her household were baptized, and she urged us, saying, If you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come and stay by my home. And she prevailed upon us. What's interesting about there, first of all, Lydia is another wealthy person, just like Priscilla and Aquila, uh, whom Paul meets and and is converts, and they become leaders in the church. And as I said in last week's episode, to much whom is given, much is expected. It takes people with, with resources to make the church happen, to make the kingdom of God happen. I happen to serve a parish with great financial resources, and, and I always say that the best thing we could do is not only leverage our money, but also leverage our heart and our connectivity. Uh, we're all expected to be a part of this game. But you also see that the, that the place of prayer is down beside water. Maybe that's our water hook for this episode. And because they don't have enough people there for a synagogue. So remember how the 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 Romans who dragged Paul and Silas before the magistrate, you know, claimed them, claimed that they were being other, they were being Jews. There are not enough Jewish people there to even have their own building. And yet Lydia down by the river now hears the gospel and her life is changed. Well, she wouldn't be the only one, and they would be a remarkable, remarkable uh, church. Now, if Philippi is such a hot town, as I've tried to make the case, if it's such a hard place to be different, such a hard place to be a Christian, how do they hold it together? Well, two clues can be found in the letter in the backs of your Bibles. If you just go to Philippians, the first thing you'll notice is it's such a happy, hopeful letter that without the background that I've given you, you would never know how hard it is uh, to be a Christian in this place. But in chapter 2, uh, Paul quotes a hymn that they were already singing. And what's remarkable about it 
This text is a little bit of archaeology in itself in that this little hymn is only 18 years after the resurrection. This is 18 years after Easter, and they're already singing it. And in most study Bibles, this little hymn, the margins are narrower. So it goes from verse 5 to verse 11. And and if you've got a Bible and you see that the margins are, are a little more narrow than the rest of the text, they're trying to show you that it's a quote. But this is the hymn. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being formed in human likeness, being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in earth and in heaven and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. The key verse here is verse 7. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. I mean, God did not only become one of his own creation, God became a slave. I need to explain slavery in the Roman world for just a second here. Um, The Bible has been used to promote, especially in the American South, but in the Western Hemisphere in general, uh, to promote human bondage in that form uh, for many years. It took, actually took an Anglican worshiping Christian, we Episcopalians, you know, are members of that Anglican family, to begin to end the slave trade in the early 19th century, a man named w- William Wilberforce. Uh, but, the, but the scriptures have been misused because of that word slave. Roman slavery was different than, than the African slavery of the Western Hemisphere that people brought over in captivity. And Roman slavery, first of all, it was so ubiquitous that it was almost, it was almost overwhelming. It was, I've read that it could have been a third of the population of the Italian boot would have been enslaved people. And enslaved people could have been any country that had been captured. It could have been any people who were born into that state. Uh, slaves could be doctors and they could be teachers. Uh, they were, um, they, could, they were attached to do just about anything, but they were also invisible throwaway people. I've, I've read that slaves might sleep under a stairwell or slaves could be abused or used in any way. Uh, slaves' children could certainly be abused. It was, it was it, almost like treating them like clones. Uh, it, was, it was similar but different than the slavery of the Western hemisphere that we're familiar with in that it wasn't based on race. It was simply based on power and capture. And these throwaway people were so everywhere that the Romans couldn't imagine life without them. A couple months ago, I was in the Holy Land with my archaeologist friend, and we were touring a Roman city called Scytopolis, one of the cities of the Decapolis that's mentioned in the Bible. And he was showing me an elaborate bathhouse, which had steam that would rise up to the floors and then go into a dome ceiling and then condense and come back down and rise up to the floors. And it would the steam would in the bathhouse regenerate over and over and over in, in, in kind of an engine. And as my friend Don pointed out that that the Romans in the first century were just an eyelash away from inventing an internal combustion engine, which of course we know would begin the industrial revolution of the 19th century, right? It would, it would, it would cause travel to be revolutionized and work and manufacturing and all that stuff. But in the first century, they didn't do it. And his suggestion is the reason why they didn't do it is because they didn't have to. They had slaves to do the work. They had slaves that they could work to death. Uh, the same thing happened in the American South. Slavery was going away until the invention of a gin, an engine to uh, make cotton pay. And then suddenly lives were worthless again as people were worked to death as they, as they produced cotton and produced cotton profits. Uh, same thing with Rome. If you had someone to do the work for you, then, then why, why bother inventing anything beyond a bathhouse? 
And yet God became one of these. He didn't become an emperor. He didn't become an aristocrat. He didn't become a senator, a praetor, any of the of the Roman nobility. Rather, he became the lowest of the low. He became a slave to show that no one is invisible. No one is beyond God's love. No one is beyond uh, God's uh, plan. I mean, his eyes on the sparrow, not upon the king. So they would endure hardships because they knew that God saw them. So, And then they would become a better humanity. As I walked into Philippi in 2018, like many Roman cities, there's a, the road of Via Ignatia, which is still there that you walk in. And then as you walk into the city, there's a theater, as there usually will be, an amphitheater or a theater. Uh, the Greeks would invent the idea of the theater because they wanted to ennoble humanity. They wanted to have uh, plays there to teach morals and to teach everyone's civic duty, you know, your role in the polis, the city, that sort of thing. By the time you get to the first century in the world of Paul, as he walked into Philippi, as my lovely Greek guide pointed out, she said, what they were doing here in the theater is killing animals for fun. Now, they hadn't gone to gladiatorial combat just yet. That would come just a few decades later. But now these bored, rich Roman people were simply hurting God's creatures for the price of a ticket. In other words, there was a moral vacuum or a moral rot within their society, even though they were builders and perhaps nothing had ever been more, quote, civilized, unquote, than first century Rome. The gospel brought new focus. It brought new hope. As my friend Edan, the archaeologist, likes to say, uh, in Christ, and then, of course, through Paul's teaching, in Christ, we get to be Roman on the outside, but Jewish on the inside. So the second clue is found in the text in chapter 4. It's chapter 4, beginning with the fourth, fourth verse. It goes like this. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, and with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's something to put on a refrigerator. It's hopeful and it's happy and it's joyful. But theirs is a deep down joy that's not dependent on externals. Theirs is a deep down joy that's a choice. They chose to be joyful in a place that was hot and dangerous. They chose to be joyful in a place where people wouldn't understand them or hound them or throw them into jail in a moment's notice. They chose to be joyful in a world with no joy. And in this way, the Philippians are prophetic. I have a feeling that the church in Philippi was Paul's favorite church because they got it, even when it was hardest, or perhaps especially when it was hardest. Well, that's a nice contrast between two cities uh, and Easter people, and we'll keep going with some more Easter people as we continue this podcast. Thanks, everybody.